Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. In 2002, the BBC conducted a poll to determine whom the United Kingdom public considered the greatest 100 Britons. Who topped the list? William Shakespeare? Charles Darwin? Sir Isaac Newton? Number one was former Prime Minister Winston Churchill, the gallant leader who rallied the Brits to stand up and defeat Hitler. Our guest today has a different opinion, suggesting that over the last 40 years, Churchill's legacy has been mythologized and elevated in standing by those who gaslight his imperial crimes, racism, cruelty, and incompetence. So why the hero worship of Churchill? Let's discuss his times and crimes with our guest, Tariq Ali. Well, uh, warm greetings. I am so excited to be in your company, Tariq Ali, and I've been looking forward to this. Greg and I devoured your book, and uh, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, likewise. For those that don't know you, you are a writer, activist, uh, public intellectual, and by writer, both fiction and nonfiction. And you wrote a wonderful book on Churchill. Tell tell me about why did you decide to bring Churchill up after all these years? Good question. Um, the late Mike Davis, who died some weeks ago, was very keen and kept pressing me to write a book on Churchill. Uh, he said, you could do it. Uh, I still needed persuading, but then a movement began of young people, decolonizers and others, who started daubing Churchill's statue with red paint, um, who painted the Churchill College at Cambridge University, uh, accusing Churchill of racism, and suddenly there was a, a huge attack on them by the largely by the right-wing tabloid press and media and it suddenly made me realize that Churchill had become such an icon such a sort of household god for the conservative party and not just them that people had forgotten the real history and that something needed to be done. So for me, it was a question of how to write the book. There were, you know, as I've written in the introduction, uh, the libraries are full of books on Churchill. There is his own work, there's works by his epigones, there's work by uh, all sorts of people. And it was, a puzzle as to how to write it. And there are some good biographies as well. I mean, one shouldn't uh, forget that. Uh, Clive Ponting's uh, biography in particular is an old uh, favorite of mine. Um, and, and there are many other specialist books on various aspects of his leadership, which are also critical. But what you didn't have was a book that placed Churchill in his times and placed him in a, a 
uh, in a world in which he grew up and in which his family uh, acquired great fame and to explain what made him what he was. So it wasn't a, 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 an ordinary biography. And that's why the book is called Churchill, His Times, His Crimes. And the times are extremely important because without it, you can't understand the crimes uh, that were committed. So that's why I decided to write it. And, um, you know, it's uh, been out since May this year and uh, we'll be having a paperback in April. And it's done reasonably well. It's, it's you know, been reviewed. It's been uh, by the right wing. The liberals have tended to ignore it. So for instance, the New York Times and The Guardian in Britain, which usually review my books, have completely ignored it, mm-hmm. um, as has the Washington Post, etc. So the sort of liberal media, is doesn't want to tackle it, even to do a critical review, whereas the right-wing press has um, gone for it, attacked it, said it's an outrage, uh, which is boomeranged because it's alerted people to the fact that the book is out. And I'm pleased to say it's doing reasonably well. Yeah, I, I, have, um, I follow the Hillsdale College, uh, which is uh, as a publication called Empress, this is a pretty influential right-wing college in the in in our country. That you know, any politician that wants to run for president ends up showing up there, and they have a whole special on Winston Churchill and uh, and how the left is not is condemning him because they obviously just don't know history. And I'll, I'll just give you a f- small example of a few things. Uh, when they talked about bombing the Irish, he said, well, I wasn't really interested in in doing that. I just wanted to kind of control them. Poison gas. I was only talking about tear gas. The left doesn't get that right about tear gas. And it, it just goes on and on with this, this revision, revisionist history that uh, people are being too, too hard on him. And, and you're, you know, and and partially, I, I was part of that problem too. I remember reading Splendid Vile and having a uh, a thought. Well, he was kind of a little bit uh, problematic in his youth, but he really rallied and saved the war. And then the the Brits were um, mean to him after the war and kind of kicked him to the curb. And my British friend, who I lent your book to, who was. Uh, he he said that was just that's wrong. He was a horrible person, and we all knew he was horrible. And that the fact that you're elevating him to be this person that saved the uh, saved the Second World War is wrong. He he was bad before. He was bad after. And don't feel sorry for him. And you know, uh, how, let me ask a question. Uh, let me ask a question. How did he become such a lightning rod? Um, if you ask people in this country more than probably in the UK. Uh, about figures in in UK history, they would they would they would cite royalty and they would cite Winston Churchill. That's really all they know. And what yeah. what made him such a significant figure that the left and the right fight over? Well, I think the only thing that did this was uh, his decision to rearm Britain um, just before the Second World War, a few years before the Second World War. He fought for that. Um, 
and uh, when other politicians were extremely nervous uh, for a variety of reasons. One, that many conservatives actually were very sympathetic to the fascists. Churchill himself was a great admirer of Mussolini and had quite a few good words to say about Hitler as well, including phrases like, had Britain been subjected to what Germany has been subjected to after the First World War? Um, I would hope very much that our country managed to produce someone as powerful and strong and patriotic as her Hitler. Um, I mean, I haven't got it in front of me, but it's a well-known um, quotation. So there was genuine sympathy for the fascists in Europe by the conservatives in Europe, including Churchill, who saw the main enemy always as the Russian Revolution of 1917. They saw that as the main enemy, that is the enemy that had to be wiped out. And this was also, of course, Woodrow Wilson's position. I mean, the first committee, secret committee set up to monitor what was going on in Russia was set up by Woodrow Wilson. So Churchill wasn't even original about that. But that his claim to fame came when the rest of Europe collapsed and Britain held together. Uh, had the Germans taken, Roosevelt was pretty convinced that the Germans might take Britain and he suggested to Churchill that the British Navy be sent to American shores uh, to be kept there till times um, improved. But um, what saved Churchill actually? which I describe in my book in, in some detail, was Hitler's decision not to capture the entire expeditionary force of the British at Dunkirk. And the Dunkirk spirit, which they go on about, I mean, the sad reality about that is that the Germans decided to leave the British Empire alone for the time being, that they had other things to do, including uh, attacking Russia uh, and the Soviet Union. And uh, so they, Britain could wait. His armies were within miles, 10 miles of taking Dunkirk, and that would have been that. If they'd taken Dunkirk and captured the expeditionary force, the Germans could have taken Britain without any doubt. I mean, this, but he decided not to do it. And um, the German generals, General Guderian in particular, were enraged, saying, what the hell is he up to? We're almost there. But the order was stop, no forward movement whatsoever. That's what saved Churchill. There wasn't anything else, really. It was the uh, German strategy and tactics in relation to Russia and the Second World War. So um, uh, it's, you know, so the mythology was created and the, the, the English are, you know, great geniuses in mythology and creating myths. And the myth was created that we uh, saved the war, we saved Britain, we won the war, which is also false. I mean, the war, if one is to be utterly uh, ruthless about stating facts, was won by two sources. It was won by the 
manpower of the Red Army of the Soviet Union. Two right. key battles, Stalingrad and Kursk. Kursk was the largest tank battle of the Second World War. The Germans suffered a huge defeat. It was that that broke the backbone of the Third Reich was the battlefields in the east and the second and equally important on some levels was the new uh, rising united states military industry which kept on producing weapons which were being sent both to russia and to other parts of the world uh, to fight the fascists and uh, they did it for their own reasons but they did it and the united states was the only country at the time which was at peace it had never known a war it had not been attacked so it could do all this without any fear <clears throat> of um, of of uh, the fascists or the uh, either in uh, uh, europe and even later after pearl harbor in japan i mean pearl harbor made it absolutely essential that the alliance the access powers had to be defeated but even prior to that arms were being made ready uh, by roosevelt uh, to to supply his allies with so if the question is asked who won the war in different ways the war was won by the red army and the american arms industry that's the honest truth. Britain played very little part in it. I mean, I don't want to, um, you know, they fought, of course, and they won some battles and lost others. I wouldn't want to detract that from them or from the resistance movements in Europe. Far from it. But I'm just saying it's exaggerated, very strongly exaggerated, the role that Churchill played. And, and to, to add... <clears throat> To add to that, another point, which is that Churchill, as your friend said to you, you, you recounted a few minutes ago, was hated. He was hated as a conservative and as someone who had made no secret of his own hatred for the more militant sectors of the British working classes. Uh, Churchill was hostile to them, hostile to their strikes, fought very hard uh, against the general strike of 1926, uh, brought Britain back onto the gold standard as Chancellor of the Exchequer. So internally, he was hated as well especially in Wales, where the miners, you know, troops were sent to deal with the miners during peacetime uh, in between the wars. And so this came to a head after the Second World War, when British workers largely, but not them alone, many others too decided enough is enough, okay, is you know the war's over we're glad we won it but we are not going to vote for churchill so churchill was defeated in 1944 in the elections 44-45 precisely because he was disliked otherwise there's no way of understanding what happened and his apologists say oh people were attacking the tories not him no they were attacking him and the Tories who supported him. That's why Labour won that uh, tremendous victory in 1945. Churchill was um, a, a racist. I think that's not that's not uh, 
overstatement at all. A controversial statement. Right. No. That's, not, that's not a controversial statement. And that history of him thinking that these white, privileged European British people were better than other people was a theme that ran through his ran through his life. And he had a specific disdain for India. <laughs> and uh, you know, said some horrible things about the Indian people. The the manner in which he he dealt with India was an absolute war crime. And your book describes that accurately. This was a thriving community, a, a, a thriving country before uh, Britain got involved with their colonialist expansion. And uh, and they literally uh, just raped this country of wealth for many, many decades. And probably India deserves reparations. I, I don't know. T tell me about Tell me, tell me about that. His involvement with that and how he was complicit in. But Churchill, <clears throat> well, look, the, you know, the first thing about Churchill is that he was a rock hard imperialist, uh, treating the racism uh, which he espoused, in which large numbers of other people espoused, not just him, and not just in the Conservative Party. There was a lot of racism in the Labour Party. Labour intellectuals in the Fabian Society said things very similar to Churchill, that we are a superior race. You can find them. People try not to talk about them, but they're all there. And um, Churchill was very open about it, saying we are a super high-grade race and appealing to the United States that, you know, it'll be our duty to defend this high-grade race after the war as well, uh, which shocked uh, Roosevelt's vice president, Wallace, who said there are lots of people in this country who wouldn't go along with that view that white people are superior. I mean, knowing his own history and the history of white supremacy in the United States, but Churchill, that never uh, stopped Churchill. India was their biggest gain in imperial terms. You know, it was a subcontinent. It was situated in Asia, on the edge of the Chinese Empire, on the edge of the Japanese Empire. Uh, it was absolutely key. And once they'd got their hands on it, they were determined to hang on to it. I mean, they crushed the great uprising of 1857 very brutally indeed and after that racism and apartheid was introduced throughout india by the british you know i mean literally there were signs saying indians and dogs not allowed on benches and stuff like that i mean so that's how they decided to rule they felt the only way they could rule was through a racial superiority uh and then the during the second world war uh, there was the beginnings of a famine in bengal one of the largest provinces in the east with a long-standing culture of its own and churchill by that time was so totally besotted by the war in europe that they said we can't spare the rice for the bengali people uh, which was not true, by the way. Rice could have been spared. 
uh, and it could have been imported from uh, neighboring countries. Uh, they turned that down in some cases and people died. You know, the figures we still don't know because in many cases, the bodies of the poor are just burnt. They're not counted because, you know, you just want to get rid of the bodies. So whether it's three, four, five million, we will never have the exact figures, but let's say between three and four million. It's a horrendous, horrendous uh, uh, figure. When we think that, you know, Hitler uh, and his allies wiped out six million Jews during the war, the killing of four million or four million plus Indians is a crime on a similar scale. And it's not the case that the British authorities in India were totally in favor of it. The British Viceroy, Lord Wavell, and his wife were horrified. Uh, Lady Wavell went and saw conditions. She said, I have never seen human beings like this. They're like animals. That's how they're being treated. And there was a strong correspondence that Churchill was adamant. It's not just Churchill. I have to keep saying this because people tend to forget. But the entire war cabinet, including Attlee and including most of the Labour members of that cabinet, uh, they didn't like it, but they said it had to be pushed through. And when um, Wavell said we can develop plans to save some people, he was vetoed. So, he, you know, people on the ground were deeply shaken by these events and it was never forgotten. And when Churchill was told, look, millions are starving to death. And he said at, a, I think, Lord Mayor's banquet that people say millions are starving to death in India because of the shortage of rice. Uh, Gandhi's still alive, isn't he? Yeah. Meaning... I mean, this is the Prime Minister of wartime Britain. Well, so uh, it's uh, it's an appalling part of British history what they did in India, actually, not just in Bengal, but other parts of the country as well. And it's now coming to light. Lots of people are writing about it. Right. It, and here are some facts on that, that when Britain got involved with India, India was a wealthy country. 20% of all the world's GDP was from India. And they literally just extracted that wealth. Um, when they left, uh, when, when they left, the life expectancy was 27 years old. Um, their literacy rate was only 17%. They were spending as much money in all of India as they as New York City was spending on education. They just extracted the wealth. And um, the question that I have is, what did the Queen know? I mean, uh, what 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 were other pe other people had to know how horrible this situation was? Um, and so it isn't just Churchill; it's the whole colonial. No, it's system. the entire system. It's the entire system. Yeah. Well, yeah. It depends which. Queen, you're referring to Queen Victoria, of course, who presided over the British Empire at its peak, 
uh, was kept informed. She knew everything that was going on, whether it was in India or it was in Ireland. Uh, the, the, the palace was uh, informed and there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that they expressed any discontent. Later, um, during the war, it was King uh, George VI, the mother, the father of the Queen who died only recently, they knew. I mean, they were part and parcel of the empire. The monarchy formed a pretty crucial part, a crucial pillar of the British Empire. They were used, they knew about the atrocities that were taking place, they were photographed, for instance, to give you an example, with happy smiling children in Kenya who were brought to where they were staying to shake hands and smile and do little dances, when at the same time, um, as Caroline Elkins, a very distinguished American historian, has written two books on this now. There were gulags in Kenya, concentration camps, where Kenyan uh, patriots were being uh, tortured and uh, uh, killed. And so, it's you see, it's not just India, it's Africa as well, both East Africa and South Africa. So, of course, the royal family was deeply imbricated in this as they were in slavery yeah well his cold war role he's out of power and yet he's an icon in the uh in the cold war in this country people remember his iron curtain speech which came at a opportune time for the mccarthyites and the, exactly. and the other world wars. yeah his his basically churchill understood sooner than some brits uh politicians that the game was up that the they may have you know technically won the uh, second world war but effectively the british empire couldn't hold out on its own and he decided um that the best thing to do was to hand over the empire to the united states and this day this they proceeded to do i mean saudi arabia and Saudi oil was handed to Roosevelt by the Brits in the middle of the war, even before the war was over. And then slowly, gradually, Egypt, uh, uh, Iran, etc., were handed over. And then the United States did the same in trying to go to save the French Empire in Vietnam, getting themselves involved in a war from where they couldn't come out for a long, long time and in which they lost over 50,000 people themselves. Uh, then similar things were done in Indonesia after the Dutch left. The US tried to control it with horrific uh, consequences for the uh, Indonesian people and a military coup that lasted a long, long time. So Churchill was totally supportive of all this. We should have no uh, doubts. And McCarthyism was a necessary concomitant of this, that we have to do this because they are evil people. They threaten our country. Uh, forgotten very rapidly was, were they evil when they were destroying the Third Reich in Europe? Were they uh, 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 evil when they were completely uh, engaged in the destruction of fascism? Um, and so McCarthyism 
and a milder version of it existed in Britain too under the Labour government, was to destroy all dissent, you know, whether people, as we know, whether people were communists or not, or sympathizers or socialists or progressive liberals, they were all tarred with the same brush. I mean, the Burgess in Hollywood, of course, have now become a, a semi-myth on their own, but they were pretty nasty. And uh, I, mean, I thought the best, it was very well captured, the absurdity and craziness of it all in Woody Allen's film, The Front, uh, where <laughs> where he makes money by getting scripts from banned Hollywood writers and, then, uh, and takes them to the studios who publish them under his name. I mean, it's a sort of uh, fictionalized story, but it did happen to a certain extent. And uh, so it's um, it was a very bad period, the, the Cold War period. And... Um, now we're having a new Cold War, which Churchill would certainly have supported. But I just basically think that we shouldn't idealize politicians, you know. Even the good ones sometimes do bad things, though Churchill was certainly not a good one and uh, got away with murder in the uh, you know literal sense of the word. If you go back to that period, 1945, uh, and, and the beginnings, the roots of the Cold War, Imperialism shifted. It's an interesting time because uh, the the anti-colonial movement was extremely strong, and in a decade or so, most of the former colonies were no longer colonies; they were independent. And you you put your finger on the fact that the U.S. then kind of took over the responsibility the empire used to have, but in a new form. Was it not a new form? I mean, a new form yeah, of it, Yeah, it was. The United States uh, didn't like the idea of occupying countries directly. That's what they resisted. They had not, they had done it in the Philippines. The results hadn't been too good. Mark Twain had set up the, and others, the James brothers had set up the anti-imperialist league. There was a huge outcry by liberals against what the United States was up to in the Philippines and in parts of uh, Central America. And so there was a constant debate and by and large, when the US took over the British, French and Dutch empires, they decided that the way they were going to do it was by creating local relays. So largely the local armies, right-wing politicians uh, worked for them with the United States only intervening when they felt that was the only way to save the country and occupying it like South Korea remains occupied to this day. And uh, Vietnam was occupied since from 1961, 62 till 1975. Uh, but uh, Japan is occupied, Korea is occupied, the US troops there. But they don't run the country itself. They have troops to make sure that the governments they support stay in power. But that's old European form of colonialism 
they they didn't go in for. And from their point of view, it was a clever thing. I mean, you know, they'd have been completely bogged down had they tried to occupy sort of semi-continents in different parts. I want to go back to the Kenya situation with Carolyn Elkin's book, um, Imperial Reckoning. It is an absolute horror story of what occurred there in suppressing what they thought were the uh, did they think the Mao, Mao were part of a of a communist group or uh, I mean they knew but, perfectly well uh, they knew perfectly well that they weren't okay I mean there was no communist influence uh, uh, within the resistance Kenyan resistance so they may have been tiny groups right. but hardly any it was a classical nationalist anti-colonial resistance that's what the uh, Mama rebellion was and they were treated in the most appalling way you know tortures were carried out on them they were there were stories of rapes of women whose husbands were in prison, etc., etc. So, uh, not, I mean, it was a horrific thing, underplayed, underplayed till very recently. I mean, that's why I praise Caroline Elkins to the skies, because she went out of her way and researched it. So, it's undeniable now. And <clears throat> I remember I was debating with some right-wing historians, uh, Niall Ferguson, the British historian who was after 9-11 given a job at Harvard because they were looking for imperialist historians. And there's another, there's an American guy with him who wasn't a f fully fledged historian, but a very right-wing Republican uh, ideologue. And when I raised the question of Kenya, we had this debate in, uh, you know, McAllister College in uh, Minneapolis. And when I raised the question of Kenya, they both raised their hands, oh, Kenya, nothing happened there. After Caroline Elkins's book came out, they have not been able to say that. They can't deny it. And I think uh, Ferguson may even have put some reference in his latest books to that. But prior to that, they thought it could just be covered up. And that's why I think uh, all scholars, whatever their views, owe a huge debt to Caroline Elkins. I mean, the two books she's written, you know, on Kenya and then latest on the British Empire, absolutely uh, indispensable books. And it's interesting. They come from U.S. historians, not from British historians. Right. Con concentration camps, uh, castration, uh, you know, abuse, torture systematic torture mass executions just and this is in 1952 and that brings me back mm -hmm. to the queen the queen died and yeah. we have all this wonderful stories and and it it should be a time to expose some of the war crimes i think that were a part of i, I don't know if she was complicit on, under it but she had to be aware she had to be aware of this they had to be aware of what was going on in 1952 in Kenya. I, I don't know. Frustrated. Well, of course they were aware of it. Yeah, they were aware of it. But this would, was, you know, part not, of that. Would we not be remiss in not seeing, that, just pointing the finger at British imperialism? I mean, the French have had empires. The Spanish had empires. 
these are features of imperialism in general, are they not? They're not just features of, there's nothing peculiar of the queen or even when- It's because the royal family sort of semi-worshipped as well. And so it's their their own past in the empire is uh, often forgotten or covered up, whereas the French, uh, etc., were republics, you know, and the the carried out all this stuff. I mean, you know, if you go back to the early years of empire, the Spanish empire in South America is probably the most astonishing achievement by a European power. Spain and Portugal took a whole continent, whereas uh, Britain only got North America and then the North Americans chucked them out and they were left with Canada, whereas the Spanish hung on there for some time. It is a European thing, you're absolutely right. The Germans were the ones who couldn't develop a large empire, which is why in the First and Second World Wars were largely, uh, not exclusively, but largely the First World War completely, imperial war, saying, why should we be left out? Just look at the size of Germany now, unified Germany with Prussia at, at uh, you know, as its heart, and compare how much we've got compared to the French and the Brits, uh, etc. And Hitler made this point regularly. You know, this is the space, this is German space. And look at our colonies, then look at the British space and the French space and look at their colonies. Why should we tolerate this? So they wanted to share the world like they'd shared Africa, um, you know, in a previous century. I'd, I'd like to talk to you about how how Churchill had been elevated to this figure of great importance, similar to how Ronald mm. Reagan, when he left office, he had horrible, you know, polling. And then 20 years yeah. later, he's this god. In 19, uh, in 2002, 100 Greatest Brits, BBC poll, and you could choose from Darwin, Shakespeare, Newton, uh, even Lennon and McCartney. But who was number one? Churchill. Churchill yeah. was considered the greatest Brit. And this is 20 years after the Falcons' War, which you said kind of started the uh, elevation of his this myth this cult the new surrounding cult, yeah. him. It used to well, this you day. Have the, I mean, with Ronald Reagan, who you also mentioned, it's very interesting to see that uh, the it's one thing the Republicans uh, loving him because that's what he was and a you know virulently right wing one, but when you heard Clinton and. Uh, Obama being interviewed and asked who their favorite president was, they said Ronald Reagan, because they'd shifted consensually uh, in you know changing what was the United States uh, from the New Deal. This was a huge break. So with Churchill, it wasn't the same. With Churchill, it was that they needed Churchill. Um, 
to be to use him during the Falklands War, which was a war they would never have won without U.S. support and uh, General Pinochet's support in Chile. They would have lost that war. So once again, the U.S. came to the rescue and told Pinochet, you better back them and let them use uh, Chilean uh, ports to get the Falklands back. But the way it was presented in Parliament, both by Margaret Thatcher as those who were opposed to the war, as some conservatives were, and a number of Labour MPs, that they were appeasers, using the word that had been used by Churchill's, uh, uh, by Churchill against his opponents, or by Churchill's supporters against Churchill's opponents, appeasers, appeasing Hitler, appeasing Galtieri in Argentina. And Michael Foote, uh, otherwise, you know, sort of soft guy, basically leader of the Labour Party from the left, joined in, backing Thatcher, saying how good she was, how necessary it was, and recalling Churchill. So the Churchill cult, if you like, the new cult of Churchill, which was sort of slowly dying out, you know, in my opinion. I mean, uh, was revived in quite a, a sharp and vicious way after the during the Falklands War. And ever since, I mean, they revived it a bit um, during the Iraq War. Saddam was described as a Hitler. They described Gaddafi as a Hitler. They described Assad as a Hitler. The Mullahs were Hitlers. And the reason for that is the only decent memory the Brits have is actually the wartime memory that they won that war. So constantly reviving that uh, became part and parcel of the ideological offensives waged by the British state in its various forms. And then MSNBC, which is our very liberal uh, cable news, um, just last week, Churchill's name came up by some pundit, some military pundit, about how the, the when the Ukrainian uh, president came to the Congress, this was a Churchillian yeah. moment. You know, they bring up this, anytime the right wing wants to expand their military power or interventions, they always elevate, uh, elevate it to a Churchillian moment. And that's what's so great about your book is to just is to knock this down a notch and say, wait a second, uh, this guy, this wasn't a great person, wasn't necessarily a great military leader, uh, had a horrible impact on a lot of our, our our 20th century and doesn't deserve doesn't deserve praise, deserves condemnation. You know, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, God knows when the, it will change. But one reason to write the book was to at least start a debate. But the liberals really here are more at fault because the right is prepared to debate and does in its own way, in its own press. The liberals basically don't like to debate this issue because, you know, they know that most, you know, of the stuff they will read in this book is totally accurate. Then how, how would they defend it, you know? Yeah. They've moved so much in the United States and in Britain, liberals and social democrats, that they would prefer not to have a debate at all and concentrate the debate 
only against very obvious targets like, you know, uh, Trump, for instance, or people associated with him. Well, which same person can disagree with that, you know, but it's not, it's uh, anything that's slightly difficult, they stay away from. Well, it's not new. It's in this country. No, it's we've not had, uh, new. You know, uh, McCarthyism, the enablers of McCarthyism, it's easy to pin the blame on on the right wingers, the crazies, but the liberals were complicit. I mean, they were the people that allowed it to happen. They're the people that urged it on. They're the people that that were uh, throwing their friends under the under the bus and so on. And so we just have repeats of this. And, yeah. and you know, the center doesn't hold. In the, in the United States, the center doesn't hold. It always goes, it swings to the right. Yeah, I mean, when I think about the United States, you know, in its past, recent past, I think it reached its highest point with the anti-war movement against the Vietnam War. I mean, that was no other imperial country has ever produced, despite itself, obviously, an anti-war movement which went that deep. So much so that in the early 70s, GIs in their uniforms retired with, you know, cripples on uh, crutches, demonstrating their medals, including some of the top military medals they'd received and demonstrating outside the Pentagon and saying they wanted the US to lose the war. That There is no other example of that in imperial history. And that, I think, is to the enormous credit of the United States and its people, those who resisted. It's after that that they stopped conscription and went for hiring mercenaries. Because once you have conscription and you're fighting an unpopular war, everyone or anyone whose child is fighting in that war discusses it at breakfast. What's the latest news from Vietnam? What the hell is going on there? So whether you like it or not, citizens have never shown the slightest interest prior to this in world politics, get interested. And I think they'd build, and they have prevented that from happening in the Iraq war and in the Middle Eastern wars of the 21st century. But that is a memory which certainly the left and liberals should try and keep alive, you know, not in an idealized way, but that it was something of extreme importance that happened to a country at war that it threw up an anti-war movement without any parallels in certainly in recent imperial history and you've been fighting that fight for a long time back and it wasn't necessarily popular to be fighting in 1968 against the war in the streets and so forth but you've been there you've been a I don't think this this I think this is accurate. You've been a hero of mine. You've been a hero of mine. I've followed your career. And you're um, you know, you you is it true that Mick Jagger actually wrote Street Fighting Man about you in the in the London in the London streets and the anti war rallies which you were a part of back then? Or is that uh, just um Yeah, it is true. Well, it is true. And 
Uh, you know, John Lennon was equally supportive of us and wrote songs for the movement, part of the people he wrote for us. And there was at that time a surge, including in the United States. I mean, if you look at some of the, uh, the songs of the groups, but also of Dylan. I mean, some of Dylan's most powerful right. songs were written right. in the late 60s, and 70s, O.E. Masters of War. I mean, still apposite today, quite honestly. So that radicalization went quite deep and affected <clears throat> large parts of uh, the culture, the political culture of the country. It's very different times now, but still, you know, some of us try. And I'd like to end on maybe one more light um light topic but have you do you happen have you watched the megan and harry netflix series about um the documentary series it it is surprisingly right it's surprisingly good because it's two it's two stories one it's a kind of a love story between these people that seem to be good people but the bigger story is the whole uh taking down the whole the monarchy and how problematic they have been in their footprint across the world and how the um and they go deeply to the the problem with the monarchy and their relationship with tabloids and so forth so it's as much political as it is just fluff hollywood it is. i mean you know. it was regarded yeah it wasn't a puff job. It was basically quite a cynical set of documentaries. Correct. And they Correct. put in stuff which surprised me, uh, you know, about how they operated, how the system worked, et cetera, et cetera. And right. You'd have thought that this it would have been enough, but the figures the supplied by the networks as to how many people watch King Charles's Christmas Day speech... 10 million. <laughs> 10 it's million. as if they're made of Tesla. 10 million people watched Charles's speech on television on Christmas Day 2022. Oh, goodness. So, you know, they, they seem to be, <laughs> it's nothing seems to touch them. I'm sure sooner or later they will go. But uh, when it's difficult to do same. Any final thoughts, Greg? No, I think that summarizes it. I, it's kind of a, a down note, but I have to agree. It's 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 not. Uh, these are exciting times. That's the best I can say. They're very exciting times. But uh, hopefully, the new year will bring uh, a fight back. It'll right. bring a rising more risings we'll have some good stories to to tell a year from now well thank you so much for being on your book is absolutely yeah, no, thanks very much for doing, doing doing the talk yeah and uh greg and i um devoured okay. it and we and you send me a link you send me make sure you send me a link so i can put it up yeah. i will i will send you a link well it's been it's it's been great to talk to you across the pond and uh keep doing good work Thank you. Right. right.